This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 124 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Sarah Gruen's 2006 novel, Water for Elephants. Do you smell that, James? No, it's not the reek of our rotting institutions. <laughs> <laughs> it's love. Love is in the air, James. Oh, I thought you were going to make a like elephant poop joke or something. Oh, yeah, it's elephant shit. No, I mean, uh, there's State of the Union tonight, so it's on my mind. I see. Uh, yeah, it was bad. I tuned in for a little bit of it, turned it off. Oh, yeah, I hard pass for that. And decided to, and then kept coming to record this instead. <laughs> like, literally just happened. <laughs> yeah. But, no, love is in the air because it's February, and we are doing this project for our Valentine's project. Uh, our, our movie episode will be coming out next week, which will be closer what did you think of this? What is it kind of a new sort of book for us? We haven't read anything really like this. Yeah, this I mean, this is a patron commission episode here in project. So uh, I, I feel like I can I can say that I, I'm not sure that we would have covered this without patron input. So, you know, like this yeah. seems like something that that wasn't really on my radar at all. So it's very cool to be able to cover it for in that in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to uh, Jamie D, uh, who commissioned this. Um, you went out with a little assist from Stephen E. Um, but it's, uh, this is a project that she obviously was passionate about and wanted us to cover. And it's a book, like you said, I, I was aware of it. I had heard the name. I hadn't seen the movie, haven't read the book, didn't know anything about it really. And so I went into this completely blind knowing nothing about it other than like looking at the cover. (laughs) Um, so it was almost as if I just pulled it off a shelf and read it. And uh, I, I think that was good. It enabled me to go in and be just completely kind of caught up in the story. And it was uh, quite a change from reading Philip K. Dick last week, <laughs> going to right. this, like, uh, very, very different writing styles. Uh, definitely. And it's it's definitely kind of a change, because this is, this is, I would say, like, a full-on love story romance novel. And we haven't covered anything close to that, really. We've, we've, I think the closest we've really come is, is Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah, or maybe Howl's Moving Castle, although that's more, that's like a fantasy romance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Silver Linings Playbook is different, too, because this is a historical romance. Yeah, which is a, and a cool element of it. I think that definitely pulled me into that world. And much like horror, romance is a genre that can get into all sorts of other genres, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, there's not like a lot of clear definition. Um, but that being said, I, I do think this is solidly in the romance genre. And it's not a genre I read a lot. And there are lots of conventions surrounding it. Um, it is, in some ways, a very strict genre. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, stretch those rules, do, try different things within the confines of romance. But. There's like a core readership that has very strong expectations um, structurally. Um, I can't really speak to them all, but because because I don't know it as well. But um, it is it is a genre thing that I want to be aware of. Yeah, I think I, I definitely think that. And it's really you know you can look at any any genre and say like this is this is the tropes of this genre. This is the tropes of that mm-hmm. genre. And for, and for romance, there very clearly is some. And I think. You know, there's no such thing as a romance story where they don't get together. You know what I mean? Maybe they don't end up together, but they get together and they're together for a certain period of time, like the the two characters right. that you're wanting to be together. Um, 
And typically I would say, you know, and again, I agree with you. I don't really read romance, but I would assume just knowing some of the tropes, having seen romance films and things like that, uh, typically happy endings, maybe some bittersweet endings, but a lot of, a lot yeah. of happiness nearing the end. Yeah. Generally, uh, that I think is true. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak too much about sort of the rules of the genre because I really don't know enough. Mm-hmm. Um, other than to know that there are rules and, um, that may be something, um, so, so this is a good opportunity to, to talk about, uh, we're going to have a guest on next week, uh, Mary Muscari, and, uh, she might know more about it. I'm not really sure. Um, we'll ask her when she comes on. Um, the reason I'm bringing it up now is that I, this is like a crossover between our two podcasts. I was on an episode of the writing easy podcast, which she, uh, is one of the co-hosts of, and I think that episode is coming out Friday. Um, so one, I think the topic we talked about was finding internal motivation versus external motivation for writing. And uh, we got kind of philosophical talking about writing, and, and it was cool. And I hope everybody who listens to Ink to Film will check that out, especially if you're a writer or a creative of any sort and that sounds interesting to you. Um, definitely check that out, Writing Easy Podcast. Yeah, that's really cool. You got to you, you were over there chatting on their podcast too. Yeah, very fun. I hope you guys all check that out. But I want to get so before we get into some biography stuff, I just want some non-spoiler thoughts for anybody who might be just curious about this book and, you know, people who've been listening to our podcast for a while and says, "Oh, this is something different for them." Um, you know, is this something that you would recommend? Is this something you enjoyed? What was your experience like? I think it took me a little bit to click into it. But I ultimately enjoyed the experience of reading it. I enjoyed kind of the journey and the change of pace from from a typical story that I feel like I like you said, I, I really cannot remember the last time I read a, a true romance novel. So it was cool to kind of, you know, get into it and, and study it. I do really think that this story did a lot of fun things with sort of the time period, um, looking at the story through the lens of an older person kind of remembering all of these things. Um, it kind of reminds me of like a Titanic vibe, sort of like looking, thinking back mm. to when, you know, in the movie Titanic, it's framed as like the Rose looking back at the the, the journey of the Titanic. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, I like that about that. And I think the circus is a really cool and interesting environment for a romance to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do think there are some things that I was, that I, um, brushed up against that I wasn't super into, but maybe we can address those as we come to them. Sure, yeah. Um, this reminded me a little bit of a book I read called The Night Circus, which was more of a fantasy romance, um, which I believe might even be getting an adaptation, so it could be on our radar for the future. Um, but this this obviously is not a fantasy. Like you said, this is more of a historical romance. I, I, I think Titanic is a good comparison. Um, maybe I, I was thinking of The Notebook a little bit, um, yeah, but it's been a long that. time since I've seen the notebook, so I, I don't remember a lot of the beats, but um, I, I was getting some of those vibes. Um, and yeah, you I mean, it's not really a spoiler because it's it happens in you know the first chapter. But this story is is told from the point of view of a man in his 90s thinking back about his life and he's in like uh, assisted living facility now, um, you know, aka a nursing home type situation and he is sort of reminiscing on his life and thinking back throughout all the things he went through and i i agree i really liked that frame for it and um i alternated between listening to the audiobook version of this and a physical copy that i have and i've got to shout out the audiobook because i thought it was really well produced 
And they actually had two different narrators uh, read, one for the young version of Jacob and one for the version of Jacob who was in his 90s. And I don't know that it was necessary, but I liked it. Like, it, it, it was a nice uh, indicator of, like, where he was in time. And I, I enjoyed both performances and thought that it was, a, it was just a well-made audiobook. So if anybody is curious about this, I do recommend the audiobook for it. Um, but my general feelings on this novel... Um, I, like I said, I, this was a big change from reading Philip K. Dick last week where I felt like the writing was really sparse and I was struggling to connect with characters. And I think the writing in this book is good and it speaks more to my sensibilities in that it did a good job of making me care about these people. And I was, I was impressed with how immersed I was in the setting um, and especially once it got to the actual um, circus and sort of just like feeling like I'm there. And, you know, I think it was like the 30s or, or somewhere around. No, maybe the 20s because it's during Prohibition mm-hmm. um, era and uh, just feeling like I was transported to this time and that I could see and smell and, and hear the sounds of the circus and just feel what it would be like to be there. And so I really love that part of this novel and then there, you know, it's got, it deals with some pretty heavy stuff. There's, um, you know, there's murder going on. There's uh, animal cruelty. There's, you know, kindness being shown to animals, too. There, It was just, it's a fascinating look at this time period. And, you know, it, being wrapped up in a love story, I can get behind that. And um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I do think that the, having this sort of moment in time, it's it's like a circus to to, I think, modern readers now. Like, I don't know when the last time you went to a circus was, but for me, it was long, 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 long time ago. Long it time almost ago, feels yeah. like a lost, sort of like a lost um, event kind of thing that people sure. used to go to. Um, like traveling circuses were so so massive. And like like you say, to to get that perspective and to see it's so of a, of a time that, that mm-hmm. probably will never come again. And it's so specific. And, and it, I think you're, you're right in saying that the writing does a great job of, of putting the reader in that, like, like in that headspace and really kind of letting you live live out that you know the fantasy of what it would be like to fall in love in a circus and like be on the yeah. you know cuz they're traveling like they're struggling for money and they're always you know uh they're they're I don't know constantly vying for different positions kind of like like you know like the the boss is always telling everybody what to do so you're kind of it's mm-hmm. kind of just like a I don't know a tense environment while also being like yeah. which which makes it I feel like primed for a for a romance yeah, and, and there's a lot of drama to this, too. And, uh, you know, caught up in some of the brutality that was going on. Um, Al, the the ring ringmaster, the leader of the circus, um, is a pretty brutal guy. And, um, you know, a lot of the people he employs are brutal. And uh, a lot of this stuff felt very rooted in research to me. Like, I think uh, Sarah Gruen did a ton of research, and a lo- I bet you a lot of this stuff really happened this sort of thing you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah and well i mean you you I, I definitely have heard plenty of stories of of you know m- mistreatment of animals and circuses and all kinds sure. of stuff like that well and that's one of the reasons why you don't hear about this thing sort of thing as much anymore is because uh these circuses were often notoriously brutal and um horrific treatment of their animals and her in really bad um mm-hmm. especially back then um conditions and i think a lot of um awareness is now about you know out there about that sort of thing so we don't see this sort of thing anymore but 
Um, and I don't think Sarah Gruen like shies away from that. I think she shows that. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's kind of like, I like that it was sort of an unflinching. It wasn't romanticized in the sense that it wasn't like everything was great. Look how amazing it was back then. We should all wish we could live in this time period. It was like showing a lot of the problems and a lot of the injustice and, um, hardship people dealt with and how little like human life was valued in some ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a really fascinating look and, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Spoiler free wise. <laughs> um, any other thoughts? No, not really. I mean, you, you mentioned the research. Did you, did you actually find anything when you, when you were researching the author, author, to, did, did she do extensive research? Was she a huge fan of circuses? Um, so the only thing I found about research in particular was a quote where she was talking about how much she enjoyed doing research and, and found that to be like a, a rewarding part of the process. Um, there isn't a ton out there that I was able to find, um, but I will give you the little bit I did. So Sarah Gruen was born in 1969 in Vancouver, Canada. She is a dual Canadian and U.S. citizen now and lives in, I believe, North Carolina. Um, her, bro- her books deal greatly with animals, and she is a supporter of numerous charitable organizations that support wildlife and animals. Her third book, which was the 1930s circus drama Water for Elephants, was initially turned down by her publisher at the time, Avon Books. And as a result, she was forced to find another publisher. It went on to become a New York Times bestseller and is now available in 45 languages. So, um, oh, I also saw that this book was a was written during uh, National Novel, Novel Writing Month, which we talked about last last year in November, around November time, wow. um, as I was doing some some writing during that month, and about how it's this month where a lot of people try and draft a novel, and um, apparently this one is one of them where, where she drafted it. I, I don't know the, the full details, but it was written during NaNoWriMo. That's cool. It's pretty pretty interesting to think about. I, so the, it just yeah. means you know the, the you you finish a draft or because it's like if you look at it the majority of the book has been written in that time period is what you're trying to yeah. say and then revisions I would assume she she went back and did lots of revisions she did tons of research probably she may have done some beforehand probably did but probably went back and added a bunch of detail um it was probably more of just kind of a bare bones skeleton draft which is usually what you get from NaNoWriMo but it's just cool to see you know that a lot of, I know lots of people participate in that in every year so it's always nice to hear about a success story exactly like yeah. this one and yeah it's interesting to think that she had a publisher who looked at this and said no we don't want it we're gonna pass and she had to find another publisher and then went on to be this bestseller which is it's like her best known novel it had a movie adaptation obviously and um went on to 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 move a lot of copies so um, I'm sure that publisher is kicking their kicking themselves. Yeah, and know? good on her for having the confidence to say like she to realize like this is a good story, and she knew that the people wanted to hear it to, enough to move to another publisher. And good work. She probably has an agent, I would assume, who helped her with that decision, helped her find a new publisher. So definitely glad she did that. Um, and it just goes to show that even if you're sort of an established, traditionally published author who maybe has had some success, that doesn't mean that everything you write is gonna always land with you know people that you're in business with and you just got to be nimble and be ready to pivot as the creative and and find another outlet for your work um and i don't know i just think it's cool to know that she did that and that we got a really good book out of it in my opinion so did you notice there was a dr seuss quote at the start of this book (laughs) about elephants uh you mean like like in the foreword or like in the actual text so before the prologue there is a quote I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. Hmm. Theodore Seuss Geisel, Horton Hatches an Egg, 
1940. Nice. So I just thought that was a nice full circle moment for us since we covered uh, Dr. Seuss for our Christmas, uh, How the Grinch Stole, Stole Christmas uh, episode we did and had a lot of fun talking about his sort of history and backstory. Uh, so I just thought that was cool to see that. I'm really into the elephant love. Like, I just think I'm always, I'm fascinated by elephants in general. And, you know, everybody talks about how smart they are and how they remember everything forever. They mourn their, they mourn like their, their kin when they lose, when they lose another elephant, hyper intelligent. And I think, you know, that's why it kind of makes it even more tragic when you see like the treatment in some, in some cases, like in the circuses and things like that. Yeah. Um, But it's cool that there's a little Dr. Seuss quote in there too. Yeah, it's really cool, and I agree. And you know what's funny is I had stumbled upon... You know, like, the algorithm on YouTube is weird. It shows you the most random things. Mm -hmm. But uh, recently, before we started reading this book, it showed me a video, and it was called, like, Man Plays Moonlight Sonata to an Elephant or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's literally, like, a guy sitting in a garden with with a piano, and he just plays Moonlight Sonata on the piano, and there's an elephant just standing there, just, like, watching him. And it like it reacts as soon as he starts playing, it starts like moving its ears and kind of like moving its trunk around and checking them out, checking out the piano. And I remember watching it and being kind of transfixed because they're like such interesting creatures. They're so big and they have these giant eyes that just have like a lot of emotion to them. And uh, it's an interesting video if you want to check it out. Um, I I think there's several of the guy playing different songs to elephants for whatever reason. (laughs) Um, Yeah. and, And, you know, it's tragic when you look into like a lot of what's been going on with them through poaching and through, you know, numerous other things. Um, the ivory trade, obviously, things like that. And then, yeah, their treatment in in circuses for a long time, although I think a lot of that has been made illegal now. Um, yeah, it, it really drove it home. And then when we get into the meat of this book, we, you know, we will meet an elephant and uh, there's a lot that goes on with them. I, I guess, are we ready to move into sort of uh, the plot and like spoilers and all that? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so if you have not read the book and you're curious about it um if you are if you're anything at all interested in a romance and you're looking for a good one i think this is a good one um it is it is um a little sad at times so if you really don't want any sadness in your romance then maybe this isn't for you um and there is some content warnings i would give for maybe some animal uh endangerment and animal uh violence against animals um but otherwise i would recommend this thing and then also if you're really into just historical fiction um i think this is a good look at a time period and i thought it was effectively done so um if either of those things sound interesting you check it out Uh, but we are now going to move into spoilers so before we actually i read my first paragraph of summary this prologue i thought was really fascinating um and this is a big spoiler right off the bat basically um it is a prologue that shows um the older version of Jacob thinking back when he was young. And it's the it's the climactic moment that we get at the end of the book where the stampede happens and he comes in and he sees it's interesting because it's it's written in a way that's a you know sort of a twist. Because it's written in a way to confuse you. He sees someone pick up a stake and ram it into the head of some guy he, that we know he doesn't like and kill him. And then he talks about how he like kept the secret all these years and he never told anyone. And then it moves on past that. And so we know that like he has seen a murder right <laughs> at the start of this book. And that's kind of the hook. I, and I think specifically the word she is used. So so mm-hmm. I was I was thinking the entire novel that that Marlena, the the female yeah, of course. Yeah. lead, was the murderer, obviously. So it was just something that was yeah. constantly in the back of my head. Yeah, and that's what you're, I think you're sort of made to believe. But um, it's a fake out. Um, spoiler, it is It is actually Rosie the elephant 
who stabs <laughs> who's doing the stabbing with the stick. And honestly, this movie, I wanted to like just something I wrote down in my notes. This I think this story is at its best when elephants are murdering people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a cheer. It was a cheer moment for sure. Uh, you know, Rosie had been through a lot of shit at at August August hands, and I was glad to see some comeuppance there. It makes you think about what's buried beneath those giant ears and those those kind eyes, though. It's like the the heart. Well, of I mean, they will fuck you up if you if you press them. That's the thing. Like, they can definitely be dangerous. They're massive, and you know, there's a reason that like lions don't fuck with them because right. they're so fucking big that like you just don't mess with that amount of mass, mass, you know? Yeah, totally. But there's, there's a, there's, I think there's a difference. <laughs> I don't know. Using a tool feels like premeditated and stuff. It's just, it's a different, <laughs> uh, different ball game yeah. than just trampling yeah. someone. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why Rosie didn't just trample him and instead picked up a stake to stab him with, um, I, you know, it's kind of stretches believability a little bit, but I also don't know enough about elephants to, to say for sure whether or not this could happen. Is it like a one in a billion thing maybe, but it could happen maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had, they had established the idea of Rosie picking the stake up and drawing it, pulling it out of the ground and like setting it aside or whatever, like, that had happened several times before, mm-hmm. so we kind of were expecting that that Rosie could grab the stake. But anyway, my point isn't to 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 get into that scene too much yet. But just um, this is almost there's a couple times here where I felt like this was a very film like thing to do. And it's not to say that books don't also have these sort of hook scenes they do. But I thought it was really interesting to present us the sort of climactic scene right at the start with no context. We don't know who the people are, and then there's also sort of a mystery hidden in there. Right. It's like it's like taking the you, you talked about how it's a it's a romance and it's a period piece um, of a specific time, but then you also add in I think a mystery right Murder. off the bat. Murder. Yeah. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you immediately are like, ooh, yeah. So I, I don't know. It got me interested. It yeah. worked on me, I guess. And then um, and then I'll I'll read I'll read a little bit of summary and then we can discuss. So the story is told as a series of memories by Jacob Jankowski, a 93 or 90 year old man who lives in a nursing home. As the memories begin, Jacob is a 23 year old preparing for his final exams as a Cornell University veterinary student when he receives the devastating news that his parents died in a car accident. Jacob's father was a veterinarian and Jacob had planned to join his practice. When Jacob learns that his parents' home has been mortgaged to pay his tuition and is not To become his, he has a breakdown and leaves his Ivy League school just short of graduation. In the dark of night, he jumps on a circus train belonging to the Benzini Brothers' most spectacular show on Earth. On the train, he is befriended by Camel, an old man and a circus veteran, who persuades his companions not to throw Jacob off the train and takes him under his wing, finding him odd menial jobs. So I want to stop there. This is sort of the setup. Um, but th- even before that, let's focus on sort of this framing device like you talked about, Jacob Jankowski, the 90-plus-year-old man who is in the nursing home. And uh, what did you think of that part? I-, I think it's pretty heartbreaking. I mean, it's the, this is the pulling on the pulling on the heartstrings uh, portion of the story, um, dealing with getting older and maybe some dementia or Alzheimer's coming in. And I think it makes the audience you know, confront their mortality and think about that kind of thing as well as the mortality of loved ones. And, and, you know, that's always tough. So I think effective and powerful. I also think this sort of the setup of, of a character in a romance novel is very interesting here because I feel like this is sort of a, you know, he's smarter than he, 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 maybe his status isn't necessarily where, where it could be, but he's smart and like he's hardworking and like all of these things are being set up. 
for I think a very interesting character and like complex character, deeper character than just somebody who, rather than it being just someone who works for a circus who ends up on a circus, he's also Cornell educated and um, is running away from something and you know has has a lot of baggage. I thought it was really effective in making me care about this care about this guy mm-hmm. and like him. Um, and you know it, it. I think it confronts us all with something that I think everybody probably is dreading (laughs) the idea of being in a nursing home and feeling like you're sort of the forgotten people. And there was a line actually wrote down that I thought was pretty powerful that, that talks about this. He says, I am one of the ancient dusty people filed away like some worthless tchotchke observing the ghost of his past. I, I just like that. He, he is fully aware of his sort of station in life. Now he knows that he has difficulty with certain things yet. He, also, like, isn't willing to accept. Like, he isn't willing to just accept his lot in life now. And he is fighting back. And one of the things that sets him off is he hears this guy make a claim that he once... Because there's a, this circus now in town. And he hears this guy claim that he once carried water for elephants. And he gets all upset, calls him a liar, calls him an old coot, which I thought was really funny. Mm-hmm. And um, did they have this kind of, like, old person fight. Um, they don't actually hit each other or anything, but just like yelling at each other and like making a scene. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know, I, you kind of cheer for him because you, you, you hope that when you're that age, you have enough of yourself left that you can sort of, that you would be this guy, you know what I mean? You wouldn't take shit if someone was just lying and you know for a fact they're lying. You, you kind of just made me think about our John Carter coverage where you were like, you brought up Family Guy, where they're like, "That's the name. That's the title of the movie." <laughs> That's, That's right. Like yep. <laughs> when the old man says, "I used to carry water for elephants," I was like, "Oh, yeah, there it is." There it and is. it comes back again later. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we hear a couple times uh, why that's called that. Essentially, the the waters. Uh, Elephants drink way too much water. It's not an amount you can like carry. And so I guess it was kind of a saying. I, I actually assume this was found in research, maybe, as something that, because um, later when he meets Al, he says, like, oh, I guess you want to carry water for the elephants. And it kind of making it sound like it's a thing that people used to say. Right. Um, and it was like a ridiculous thing. And like everyone knows it who actually worked in the circus um, was my read on it, at least, at least. And if it wasn't, it was effectively created or, you know, effectively set up to be that sort of thing. So his backstory, um, he has sort of a tragic backstory. His parents die, um, not sort of, he has a tragic backstory. His parents die uh, horribly in a car accident. Um, they, he finds out that they mortgage, they had a second mortgage that they'd taken out just to pay for his schooling. And he has like a breakdown and he just kind of goes walking. And then he hops on a train, happens to be a circus train. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of the start of his involvement with the circus. He's set up to be a pretty, pretty strong romantic lead because he is, he's like, he's, he's got a tragic backstory. He's, he's clearly intelligent. He's adventurous. He's got a lot going right? for him. Yeah. It's like, he's got a lot going he's for interesting. him. He's interesting. He's fallen on hard times. Right. So he's not like just some random guy who works at a circus who happens to be charming. He's got a lot more than that. Uh, I also think it's cool to think about the time period where you're just like, you know what? I'm going to change my life and you just hop on a train and <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I I feel like it probably was at that time sort of like dealing with the depression and, and some of that kind of stuff, you, you would end up going all over the place looking for work. So it kind of fits the time period. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it was a very uh, kind of authentic time piece and then running away to join the circus, right? Is this something that people talk about? Mm -hmm. And it was a thing that I guess people really did um, because it was a way to find menial labor in general. 
I did want to mention that we learn in the first chapter that he lost his wife of 61 years to cancer and that he is lonely now and he talks about his family has sort of forgotten him um, but he does have five kids I don't know if that comes out in the first chapter but we kind of slowly learn about this stuff but we, yeah we learned that he had a wife of 61 years that died um, like a year ago or something and now he's been here um, so that's another just like oh man you know like all these things are really sad and it's like everybody's worst nightmare you know yeah all effectively done I think this it's smartly written in a way to evoke certain emotions and to make you connect with the um hero here oh i wanted to mention also um and i think this is probably a thing this is probably like a kind of choice to make in a romance novel but i did think it was interesting that this was all from the point of view of sort of the male hero and the heroine um in marlena is sort of silent throughout we don't ever get her point of view and um so it's it's interesting like i wonder if that's like super prevalent and a lot of books are written this way or if it's unusual, I, I don't know enough about the genre, but um, I did think it was interesting, right? Yeah, because you, you have to look at romance and understand that it is wish, wish fulfillment as much as many other stories, that, that many other genres, all kinds of stuff that people read. So I think maybe romance is, and I'm, you know, this is painting with a broad brush, but typically for a female, de- more of a female demographic. Um, and maybe say, yeah. they would find the, you know, the opposite gender, the male sort of story to be more, um, different than their own story kind of thing. And maybe like feeling closer to the male character would get them more drawn into the romance. I don't know. Just, just spitballing here. Well, I mean, I'm sure that, I'm sure that there are plenty that are, that are not written this way, but it is, it is a choice. And like you said, it could be appealing for that reason. Um, and I assume that that was kind of the idea. I did also see somewhere where, um, Sir Gruen said that she Jacob's story here is actually kind of similar to Jacob's story from the Bible. Um, but I really don't know enough about Jacob in the yeah, Bible I to I don't remember to, to make any comparisons to that. Me yeah, I, I don't know. Um, anyway, let's read some more summary. When the owner of the circus, Uncle Al, learns of his training as a vet, he is hired to care for the circus animals. This leads Jacob to share quarters with a dwarf named Walter, who is known as Kinko to the circus, and his dog, Queenie. A few weeks later, Jacob is summoned to look at Camel, who, after drinking, quote, Jake, uh, which is adulterated Jamaican ginger extract, for many years, can't move his arms or legs, fearing Camel will be, quote, red-lighted, which is thrown off a moving train as punishment or severance from the circus to avoid paying wages, and Jacob hides Camel in his room. So this is actually kind of skipping ahead, and we're going to move back a little bit. But um, let's talk for a moment about Walter and Camel and Queenie and this this kind of group that he he ends up bunking with for much of the novel. I really like it. I mean, it's a it's a group of outcasts or mis- misfits, right? Like even within yeah. the circus, they're they're the people that pe- that everyone is staying away from. Um, right. I think that it's, it shows compassion with the main character here that he, you know, eventually befriends these people, cares for Camel. He's kind of dead weight, you know, like he, he's in a situation where like he's, <laughs> yeah. well, he's like paralyzed he's basically, par- right? He can't, or, and he's being yeah. like, you know, the food is a, is a commodity, hot commodity, water. They were always talking about like going mm-hmm. hungry and not having enough water and all this kind of stuff. And so to take on someone like that is a huge, it's a huge, uh, compassionate move, I would say. 
I think it's notable that this was the guy in Camel who gave him a chance, gave Jacob a chance. And so he, you know, it's him kind of doing the right thing and sticking up for this guy who can't, who no longer has a place here because he can't work. We also sort of through this and through some other things that happen, learn about this process of red lighting, um, which is essentially just throwing someone off a plane, off of yeah. the plane, uh, throwing someone, get off this fucking plane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> getting mixed up with a, what snakes on a plane, uh, I don't know, other, other movies. Um, no, off the train, he throws them off the train and uh, it says like, so if you're lucky, they throw you off near a stop. But if you're unlucky, they throw you off at like a bridge or something and kill you, essentially. Well, it seems like at first when it's brought up, I just assumed it was like, oh, we kick you off, kind of like get off of here. You're, we're going to throw you off like while we're going slow. But it's, but I didn't realize until no. later that it's like they're straight up murdering a bunch of people. Yeah, well, potentially. They're just throwing them off the train and severely getting injured, injured could die, could, you know, it depends on maybe where you get thrown off. You know, lots of things. Um, but yeah, you know, and this to me has the, you know, the 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 smack of something that really happened. You know what I mean? Like this sounds like a real thing mm-hmm. that, that people probably talked about that she probably found in her research, um, I would imagine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. These are the sorts of details that I think um, if, if you're ever going to try and go back and write a period piece, like getting this sort of stuff right um, can really help sell it. So the equestrian director, August, is a brutal man who mistreats the animals in his care, such as the new elephant, Rosie, and the people around him, but he can also be charming and generous. Jacob develops a guarded relationship with August and his wife, Marlena, with whom Jacob falls in love. August is suspicious of their relationship and beats Marlena and Jacob. Marlena subsequently leaves August and stays at a hotel while she is not performing, Uncle Al then informs Jacob that August is a paranoid schizophrenic and utters a threat. Reunite August and Marlena as a happily married couple or Walter and Camel will get red lighted. So this also skips kind of a bunch of stuff. I was going to say, yeah, we've, we're, we're deep in the story now. This is, I mean, we were talking about the whole book. I don't know if we said that. We're talking about the whole book this week, so we're covering a lot of ground. Um, but yeah, August, uh, what, what's your thoughts on this guy? Well, so, I mean, August, clearly a piece of work. And like we, I think... A very, very easy way in a story to be like, this guy fucking sucks is to have one, him beat women or treat women in the way that he does to mm-hmm. beat animals in the way that he does. Yep. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't know. It's very clear. It's like, this guy's a piece of shit and like, yeah, he can be charming, yeah. but it's an abusive relationship. And like, um, I think that it's a it's a I I will say the the schizophrenic thing seemed I don't know I guess I'm not you know I can't make a diagnosis of any time but it didn't really seem like schizophrenia to me um yeah yeah I wasn't sure about that either um I did think it was funny that they they they, they the whole time it's kind of like oh he's this he's this crazy paranoid guy and you know he thinks everyone's out to get him but like they kind of were. <laughs> oh yeah, that's Jacob the other thing is like was into his wife, like that was happening. <laughs> and you know, creates tons of tension and and like uh yeah. especially because like there's there's moments where Jacob and and August are trying to get along for this, you know, like like because they're all part of this circus troupe and um yeah. it doesn't last all that long, but there are moments of that and and you know, sort of how do you how do we feel about the fact that this story, although I don't know, man, it's it's t- it creates a, a good tension, but like ultimately, like it still kind of sucks. Like they were married, and like yeah, he's a piece of shit. But like for the story to to go in that direction, like I would have liked yeah. liked to have just seen Marlena get out of the relationship at that point and not even care as much about the, the romance, you know? 
Well, that's too that's too easy, man. Um, you, you know, and, and you, you hit it on the head. Like the, to make this story work, he had to do something unforgivable, and it's his treatment of Rosie that signs off like we're like whatever happens to this guy we're going to be behind now yeah, because totally. of what we see we see him like beating this elephant mercilessly for like no reason and like it's not going to do anything other than just be cruel and so and we hear about these moods he has and so because of that like you kind of don't care but like if you put set that aside then it's like it is fucked up that like he is suspicious of something going on and like something kind of is going on. And so there's times where they're getting in this argument and, and uh, Jacob's being very defensive. He's like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Like we're not, nothing's going on. What do you, you know? And it's like, you're kind of lying, dude. Like there is something going on. And he, he noticed. Yeah. And so it's like getting a fight over it and all this stuff. And like the only thing that keeps us on Jacob's size is just how despicable this guy is. I don't. I will say, like, for the sake of the story, Jacob didn't. The, nothing actually happened until they were kind of broken up, right? Or, or I guess right. there were kisses. Yeah. There were kisses, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, by like certain romance rules, I feel like is okay, um, because you know, if she really didn't want it, she, like he, she re- sort of rebuked him, and then he was re- he was ready to like not pursue it. Um, you know, I don't know. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is that. Uh, I think it works for the story, but there are there there's definitely some 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 grayness in there that I think yeah. makes for a good interesting story that you know people people will be into. It's hot and steamy and and like kind of forbidden and all that. So I think that that's right. Part that's of the it. thing. She is she is this unattainable woman, right? Like she he is in love with her, yet she's married to this guy who's clearly no good for her, and you know, there's this impediment and, and the guy is also his boss. So it creates all this like tension about mm-hmm. he wants to keep his job and the guy is a piece of shit yet. And he, you know, but, but the guy is capable, he's dangerous. And so he's like this formidable opponent too, that he has, um, it cre- it's good storytelling and it works. Um, and I think it had to be carefully set up for all the reasons we just talked about. Once we learn some more about Marlena's backstory, I think I think it le- lends more to why we're like fuck August, like get him out of here. He sucks. Yeah. Well, what, like, what, what was, in particular are you talking so about? So she, you know, like her family sent her to the circus, and then mm-hmm. and then he, like he, August, kind of forced himself on her um, within, and they were married very very quickly. And like the, the yeah, the she owner was like of the circus. The owner mm-hmm. of the circus was like pushing pushing them to do it as well, and like it yeah. all happened very quickly and. And like, okay, yeah. I, I don't know. There's kind of like a little it's dodgy, kind of a little like, shady for sure. She, yeah, she she doesn't seem like she was able to really make a decision. So before we get much further along in the story, I want to take a moment and talk about Barbara, <laughs> uh, in the the cooch tent, uh-huh. um, and him and he he has this like the first time he ever sees a naked woman is him going to this strip show mm-hmm. that she puts on um, early on, and uh, yeah, what did you what did you think of that whole sequence? Uh, unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> uh he was like he was supposed to be like guarding her and making sure that people couldn't touch and everything like that yeah but then after the performance she was like i'm gonna sleep with some people so pay me if you pay me yeah. the right it was not in those words but basically she was like you know the money i don't remember how it specifically worded but it seemingly prostitution yeah. was going down and so like oh, for sure then yeah. so it was like uh his job was like holding them back and then and kind of keeping them, keeping the audience from getting too rowdy. But then also afterwards, he had to like guard the room where she was sleeping with like a bunch of men for, for money, yeah. prostituting. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, this is an interesting sort of situation where we can kind of weigh in because I feel like we've read a lot of books 
written by men with women characters from women's point of view. Mm -hmm. This was a woman writing a man, um, writing a young man's point of view. And what did you think of how she handled a lot of this like sexuality stuff with Jacob? And did it ring true to you or did it ever feel like uh, maybe someone getting something wrong? Did you think it was right? I mean, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think the circumstances and kind of the situations were, were extreme, but Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, yeah, this is like a, he, he's a virgin and like we know early on that like he's been made fun of about it a little bit or something. And like he, you know, he thinks about how he doesn't want to be a virgin anymore. Um, so then he's, you know, there's that innocence and then going into these situations, um, immediately, like as soon as he joins the circus, basically, um, yeah, I think, I, I think I buy it and I think it's there to like add a little bit of sexiness. There was nothing where you read it and you were like, nah, that's not right. You, you, you felt like it was all pretty good. Not, not that I can think of. Was there, it sounds like there's something yeah. for you though. Tell me. No, no, not necessarily. Um, I, you know, I just think it's interesting because like, uh, this is just something that is a struggle for all, all writers to try and do, like try mm-hmm. and, and, and imagine. And, and a lot of times you kind of go off of like what you know through culture, what you know through like the people you've met in your life and talk to about it. And, um, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I wanted to give her credit for that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's something that that I, I've read. I've actually have read a couple of romance novels before. Um, in particular, we read them sometimes in our in, at Seton Hill as part of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one we I read in the program was really bad about this. And I, I thought this one was not as bad. But um, and it was something that I thought was funny because I thought it was kind of unrealistic. But then like there was other people. There was other guys I knew who like disagreed with me. So maybe it's just me. But um, there was like this obsession with the male character constantly getting erections, like. <laughs> I think Always, that's part just of like a, in most uh, yeah. random times, just like, just like really obvious erections, having to hide it, mm-hmm. talking about like all the blood rushing away from his head and stuff. Mm-hmm. And just like, and it was like all the time. It was like, as soon as someone walked in a room, bam, and just like all these things. And, and, um, I remember thinking like that was a little unrealistic, but then like someone else disagreed with me when I said that. So I was like, I don't know, maybe <laughs> this is my experience. It's not like that, but, um, I think, uh, I don't know. <laughs> this, this, it happens a little bit in this book, but not a ton. I do think, um, I mean, look, if from the from the perspective of a female gaze, like, of course, you're going to talk about erections, right? In a romance sure. novel like this, like, it's got to yeah. be, like, hot and, and, like, have some stuff to it there for them. So, I think that to talk about erections is, like, the equivalent of talking about, <laughs> you know, women being aroused or something like that. So, so sure. I, Nipples I getting hard and all that. <laughs> Which, you know, she gets into all of that in this book. She doesn't hold it back. And there is some, there is some fairly explicit sex scenes this is one of those sex books james a sex book well, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you were talking about on john carter or were you specifically talking about like a tingler like a chuck tingle type book i i mean i was talking about the ones that are like very specifically like you look at the cover and like, like erotica erotica yes yeah. yeah okay not that not like this no Okay, gotcha. All right, well, I think that's enough erection talk. Let's move on before we make our audience. <laughs> I think too we hit our yeah, we hit our quota. We hit our quota for the episode. <laughs> I think for the year, honestly. Uh, <laughs> I, I, like I don't know, man. I, we're talking about a romance book. I don't want to shy away from it, right? Like we talk no, about yeah, all the gory details for everything else we talk about. So, yeah. and that's like an important part of this book. It's an important part of writing romance. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to write these sorts of scenes. Right. Um, but I do want to move into one that actually I had my biggest complaint about this book. And I and it's interesting because I feel like this is a fairly new thing that there's more awareness of. And in particular, I watched a video recently from the Pop Culture Detective YouTube channel about um, sexual assault against men in popular media. And um, he just really he had it was like a two parter. One was that like perpetrated by men, and then the most recent was perpetrated by women. And so this was sort of fresh in my mind. 
And there is a sequence where Barbara and another woman, I forget her name, Nell, I want to say Nell, um, sexually assault Jacob. Um, and I don't know that there's any other way you can really look at this scene that goes down. Um, he's incredibly drunk. He's not able to give consent. And in fact, there's a couple times where he tries to say no and tries to fight back against the thing and, and is saying, like, I'm not, I don't want this to happen. And then he can't remember what happens. And he's unclear whether or not he even had sex with them. And yeah, there's definitely some stuff that if you were to flip, if you were to inverse it, like invert it and think about like two men and a woman, like this would be a really horrifying scene. Yet the tone is kind of set up to be more like he's kind of enjoying it and he kind of is okay with it. And it's not really set up to be like, oh, I got raped. Right. Well, after the fact, it's no, I think it's more for it's I think it's almost I I mean, maybe you can say that it's not, but I feel like it's almost for laughs. Right. It's almost like a humorous thing that goes down because he like had his pubes shaved and like all yep. of these things, like it was very specific. Like, and he is ashamed of the situation. And he kind of is ashamed that he didn't like do better. Like, oh, I could have performed better. It was my chance. Yeah. It's kind of how he feels about it later. Yeah. Um, which which is interesting because like that is a trope that um, is talked about on the Pop Culture Detective uh, channel. And I think it's a great channel that's really like pushing boundaries and like sh- kind of shining light on men's issues in a way that I don't think we've been seeing a lot of late. And that's one of the things he talks about in that that video is he shows all these examples of how sexual assault from a woman onto a man is always in pop culture showed to be something like either like funny or um, emasculating for the man or something where everybody is like supposed to cheer and be like, oh, he's so lucky, like because the assumption is that men always want sex even when they don't think they do even when they say no they don't want it like that they still do mm-hmm. um it, i don't know it, it, it's a really great video i mean i'll link in the show notes you guys should check it out but um it just this scene made me think of that and it, it made me a little uncomfortable and I, and I just felt like it is a very stark double standard if you think about if if all the genders were reversed or everybody involved how this would seem would be horrifying um to us yet because of because of how it is and um, it's just a completely different tone to the whole scene. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting issue to look at. Um, and maybe it has something to do with like um, power, di- typical power dynamics. Um, yeah. and- no, it absolutely does. Because this is, I'm, I'm, this is a thing that is perpetrated largely by men. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, it is, yeah, the, the idea that like being sexually assaulted makes you womanly. You know what I mean? Like, that's a toxic masculinity thing right there, right? Mm-hmm. Because you are in the, like, the implied thing is that you are being a woman in getting assaulted. Right. Which is a fucked up thing to, you know what I mean? A yeah. fucked up thing to imply. But that's the implication of it's okay because, ha, 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 look at this inversion. You know, men aren't in any danger. It's women who are in danger. Right. Um, it's, it's just, it's, there's a lot of layers to unpack. And I feel like I'm not really doing a great job of like laying it out. So definitely check out that video. I'll link it in the show notes. But I want to move on from it. But um, I just wanted to note that because I thought it was like, it really stood out as an example of sort of what he was talking about in that video. So a few days later, after discovering that August has tried to see Marlena, Jacob visits her in her hotel room. Soon after he comforts her, they sleep together and soon declare their love for each other. Marlena soon returns to the circus to perform and have secret meetings with Jacob, but refuses to have August near her, which makes Uncle Al furious. She also discovers that she is pregnant. One night, Jacob climbs up and jumps each car while the train is moving to August's room, carrying a knife between his teeth, intending to kill August. However, he backs out 
having leaving the knife on August's pillow and returns to his car only to find that no one is there but Queenie. He then realizes that Walter and Camel were red-lighted, and he was also supposed to have been. So this was a pretty kind of surprising turn of events here at the end, right? Like, we see him finally push to the brink where he's, like, going to go murder the guy. And uh, then he comes back and come to find out Walter and Campbell are just gone. They've been thrown off the train. And we later learn it was the worst kind of red lighting you can get. It was at a trellis and it was like uh, Camel died from it. Mm -hmm. And then it sounded like Walter might have as well, um, like was injured and then died from his wounds like the next day or something like really brutal. So they murdered his friends. Yeah, it's I I think this is what I was talking about with sort of like when I talked about before the the this story is at its best when when elephants are murdering people and things like that. Uh <laughs> I think I think when the tension fully ratchets up, right? Like when all of when all when it's coming to the culmination of all of the storylines and everything coming together, Jacob and Marlena are forced back to the circus to make money and save up so that they can run away together, but they're also very close to August because of that. And we have Al sort of pushing pushing august and marlena back together and uh there's sort of tension with walter as well because walter like when he knows that when they leave he's going to be on his own and he'll be vulnerable again um and you really i feel like you feel for his friends as well um everyone's just in a in a kind of a rough situation then he's like he finally you know takes the knife and decides to do something about it and he's sneaking around and what i think may have been one of them i think was the most tense scene for me for sure because i was like what this is it this is the big moment uh, he, mm-hmm. he chooses not to murder August and then finds out all of, and it's like this, it's heartbreaking because had he not made this decision, maybe he would have been there to protect his friends. Maybe he would be dead as well, but also, yeah. you know, it was for nothing ultimately. And and not to say that I wish that he killed August, which I can't, you know, I think we're supposed to feel like, oh, he should have, but he's a good person deep down. Well, but just and he was that, asleep. And so like killing someone in their sleep seems kind of dastardly, right. regardless of how much of an asshole they are. Yeah. Right. And then, and then just to know that his friends were dead and he couldn't do anything about it because yeah. of that is, it's, it's just rough. It's, it's a pretty, uh, I yeah. think it's effective. I think it's. I think it's um, one of my favorite parts. Well, and it's the last straw, right? Like it's. This is. This is. Al has gone too far. This is really the the nail in, in Al's coffin, and and you know that he has orchestrated this. Um, is is yeah beyond the pale, but I want to back up a little bit and talk about. There are two separate occasions where August grabs the bull hook, as it's called. It's like an instrument used to like hook and beat and like you know cause inflict pain in order to control yeah i looked at i googled it did you do you know what it looks like i did not look it up but uh yeah what, what did it look like so it's kind of like this this cane with a really sharp hook on the end and like oh it's almost like as a hammer, I was imagining <laughs> hammer end and like a hook at the other end and it's like this long yeah. cane you i think it's used for stabbing and beating as you were saying you know hooking and stabbing yeah. and beating but it looks and i'm sure it's heavy um but yeah historically they were used to to, they were using the circus a lot. Wow. So, yeah, he takes it and he goes to be... And, and so the first time it happens and Jacob doesn't do anything, um, I thought was 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 heartbreaking, but also, like, I kind of understood it. But I felt like the second time he didn't do anything, I was very frustrated with him as a character. Mm-hmm. Like, I really wanted him to do more. Like, I kept expecting him to say something. But every time he sort of just sat there, did nothing. And then after the fact, like after he was gone, he was like, oh, I can't ima- I can't believe I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, man, I can't believe you didn't do anything either. What the fuck? Like, yeah. um, 
I don't know. Maybe it's just my personal like affinity and, and like love for animals and so I was just like I don't know how he can stand by and just not do anything. Like the first time, like maybe he didn't quite realize what was gonna happen, but like he's seen the effects of what August is capable of doing. It's happened before. He regretted not doing it the first time, so his second time is like his chance to remedy that and actually do something, and he once again doesn't do anything. Um and I don't know. I mean, I guess they're creating they're setting up what happens later for Rosie. But um, I even if he had tried something and it was unsuccessful, I still would have given him more. Cre- I wanted I wanted to give him more credit for trying, and I was I felt frustrated with him that he didn't say anything, he didn't do anything. He he kind of was like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" But he like, didn't really do anything. He didn't really say anything. Yeah, you know. Uh, and yeah, and we've seen well, the other thing we haven't really talked about very much is we've seen August and the other circus circus members. Um, the way that they treat animals like they you know at one point they they kind of got a bunch of other animals that weren't from their circus they were from another circus yeah and they basically just used them as food like they killed them cut them up fed them to the other animals fed them to the cats and stuff all kinds of stuff so it's like yeah there was a there's a part where he comes around the corner and there's like a guy who slits like two horses throats yeah it's it's really brutal brutal stuff so you know that's all going on in addition to the way that you know we're just close to rosie so we see we see a lot of this stuff um yeah you know there's the treatment of the horses and and all that kind of stuff as well so uh i think i get what you're saying about jacob not doing something here but at the same time i think it's to also not only is it to set up the rosy stuff but it's also to show like he's powerless within his you know so, sort of like circus hierarchy like he what can yeah. he do what can he say like if he fights somebody he might get red lighted you know what i mean he might get this so mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a part that comes a little later. Now it's it's maybe he's been pushed a little bit farther, where where uh, Al threatens him something about a job, and he says like I don't care about this job or whatever, and he like storms off. And and there's just like there are a couple times where he does kind of stand up and and push back, and I thought that was weirdly absent from that scene. Mm-hmm. We can move on, you know. I think it's fine; it doesn't break anything for me. It just me personally, as much as I wanted, as I liked Jacob, and I want to unabashedly like him that was our moment of weakness in him that um that while the first one i thought was forgivable the second one to me i ha- i struggled to forgive at least not seeing him try a little harder so i wanted to say just with walter and and camel and jacob and all i just wanted to talk about their relationship more because i feel like we haven't s- said too much about it but so mm-hmm. i love this idea of walter being um like kind of not liking jacob at first like kind of hating him yeah and then like slowly over time the relationship builds um i think because he helps diagnose queenie something going on with queenie his dog yeah and then you know jacob comes back hurt to the car a couple times and and there walter's there to help uh so i do like the friendship aspect of it as well i think that they built that well and we already talked about how camel basically saved jacob his life in terms of giving him a job and getting these, him this opportunity. So seeing him yeah. succumb to that sort of alcohol that whatever he was drinking was, was pretty, pretty rough. And then both of them dying in the end was, was also, yeah. you know, like you said, it's the a last little straw. bit of like a, a little bit of a found family type scenario going yeah. on here. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I find it so shocking when his found family essentially dies, <laughs> right? right? Like, it's like the, that's like his Batman moment though, right? Like, so now he's like, on, like, you no, would no, think no. He the would... Batman moment already happened. That's when his parents yeah, died. You're right. You're right. So that, this is, <laughs> this is like the his... second, this is his new family he's formed and then they die too. The Joker killed Robin and now he's got to, now he's got to <laughs> take care of that. Yeah. You know, it's Alfred, you know, it's, it's, you know, the new people he's close to. It, it was, it was, it was quite a 
decision to to have that happen um, because I thought that you know usually that you know things are a little rosier at the end of these kind of books and and you know they all kind of go together happily and all live on a farm upstate you know yeah. <laughs> or what have you yeah. um and they have this new little family they formed even though they're not actually related they you know i thought something like that was going to happen and they were going to help each other out but no it instead ends up being um a pretty dark moment but let's read a little more of the final summary here so as the story climaxes, several circus workers who were red-lighted come back and release the animals, causing a stampede during the performance. In the ensuing panic, Rosie takes a stake and drives it into August's head. His body is then trampled in the stampede. Jacob was the only one who saw what truly happened to August. As a result of this incident, the circus is shut down. Soon after, Uncle Al's corpse is found with a makeshift garrot around his neck. Marlena and Jacob leave, taking with them the circus animals, including Rosie, Queenie, Marlena's horses, and I think Bobo, the orangutan. And they begin their life uh, by joining the Ringling Brothers Circus. Later, Jacob becomes the chief veterinarian at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, where they settled. So this is kind of moving into the end game here for that storyline. There's the big stampede and yeah, Rosie murdering a dude by driving a stake into his head using her trunk <laughs> as an arm. It's pretty awesome. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. it was good to see the comeuppance obviously after all of this. Uh, yeah. What do you think about, I, I just was like immediately trying to figure out like, okay, so they've saved Rosie. They've saved all this. As I'm reading, I'm like, what can they possibly do? What's the best case scenario for them? Like, how do you, you can't just have an elephant anywhere, you know? I think at one point yeah. he talked about how he wanted to go back to Cornell, Cornell and finish. And I was like, well, you can't have an elephant and go to Cornell. So <laughs> yeah. decisions just have, have to be made. My, just have them in my uh, flat. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, they join another circus, which is like the only thing you could do if you have an elephant, basically, right? right? Like, yeah, that's your only other only other choice. Um, yeah, and, you know, with the implication that they go on to live this happy life, he adopts Queenie. Um, the little dog um, who was who was Walter's. And I guess that's sort of Walter's legacy living on for at least a little while. Um, and yeah, they adopt a bunch of animals and uh, they seem to live happily. Now, what's interesting is like this story could have been wholly told from this perspective. But the framing device of the older version of Jacob really tinges it all with a sense of sadness because we're seeing a man at the end of his life where all of this is now gone. And even though he remembers it, like his wife is now gone, his children seem to have forgotten him or at least like can't, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to give him too much shit because like it's understandable. Um, they all have their own lives. They all have their own problems. And in fact, a lot of his children, I think are in their seventies. He talks about like, um, you know, they all have their own grandkids and he's like a great grandfather and stuff. And, you know, they all have their own lives. And that's, you know, totally understandable is what happens. But you also, from his point of view, it's sad, right? That they, you know, he, he can't remember them and he can't remember all of his grandkids and they don't take him to see the circus, which is the thing he wants to do. Um, but yeah, but I mean, before we move into that final little bit, I guess, let's focus more on this big incident, this big stampede. Um, and it, it is the callback to the prologue. Um, and there, I, I thought there was, I, I liked that she used a couple of key details to remind us that this is something we've seen before. Um, and that's something that I try to do sometimes in my writing. Um, I think it's a nice little technique. Um, and I don't know if you noticed it, but like having, having, when they describe, um, 
the hyena hanging off the back of I think it was like a like a ram or a or a goat that runs by. And then there is um, a llama gets knocked over and it like splays out into a five pointed star. And there's a couple of these phrases which are like exactly word for word what is described in the very start of the prologue. And mm-hmm. it's this like, um, and then yeah, the way it describes the the head getting split open by like a melon, I think, mm-hmm. um, something like that. Um, there's a couple of phrases that are identical to like show like to remind us that we've heard about this moment before, and this is the moment, right? Yeah, uh, when I first read the prologue, as we're setting all this up, I was like, oh, that's going to be a crazy moment in the book, not really thinking that it would necessarily, you know, I think you can infer that it is the, the, the climax and the finale and it's the end of the story, but I also felt like maybe it was just a story in an instance from somewhere in the middle of the story, so... Um, you know, as we're going through the story, I'm expecting it. I'm like, when's it going to come up? When's it going to come up? And then nearing the end, I'm like, of course, this is the moment. Here we go. And and it begins. There is something nice about it. It's like, there's like sort of, it's like a rhyme or like, you know, it's like more of the same and it brings you back around and full circle moment. Uh, I like it. Cool. All right. One last chunk of summary here. So back in the nursing home, Jacob is waiting for one of his children to take him to the circus. It is revealed that Jacob and Marlena married and had five children, spending the first seven years at the ring, at Ringling before Jacob got a job as a vet at the Chicago Zoo. Marlena is revealed to have died a few years before Jacob was put into the nursing home. After finding out that no one is coming for him, Jacob makes his way to the circus next to the nursing home on his own. He meets the manager, Charlie, and after, after the show, begs to be allowed to stay with the circus selling tickets. Charlie agrees, and Jacob finally has come home. So I thought this was, you know, yeah, really interesting scene, right? And and we kind of cheer for him. He has this sort of like great escape moment, but it's he's on a walker, yeah. he's very slow. <laughs> he's like sneaking out of the nursing home yeah. and making his way over, and then he doesn't have any money. But he, you I know, was he happy gets for him in. though. That that sort of moment of agency is is nice for him because yeah. he's been so cooped up, and he just feels like it's all exactly, over yeah. This this is a nice culmination of that, like him taking back some agency in his life. I don't know how this is going to play out, like realistically. Yeah. <laughs> this guy like needs help bathing, and like he kind of, I mean, like he talks about how he doesn't really need as much help as they give him, but also he has fallen and broken his hip before. So, well, not to mention like, he's that like could happen any day. Like it's not to mention he's know. worse off than when we started the story. Seeming like as we went on, he was seemed to be forgetting more and more. Uh, Having more memory problems. So yeah. so yeah, I mean, and like the guy's ninety, and like yeah. But I, I did like that he he tells the guy his story and the guy knows what he's talking about. He's like, oh, you, the, you were there for the big, you know, the stampede. That was like one of the biggest circus disasters ever. Right. And he lists like two others that I'm sure are real. Um, and uh, I, I like that he like appreciated the history, appreciated this guy's story. And then he vouches for him and he says, oh, that's my dad when the cops come and sort of lies for him and then takes him on and and yeah it is it is like a nice he returns to he runs away to the circus again as an old man right like right second yeah the narrative i like the narrative elements of it like i like it as as sort of a story but yeah and thinking of it in like the real world in like more of a present day sense like you're kidnapping an elderly person who needs to be (laughs) who needs to be in a in like a home seemingly um yeah i don't know well it was okay. You know, yeah, you're right, ultimately. Um, and, you know, who knows how long this actually lasts and, yeah. and, and all that. But I did like that he got to drink some Laphroaig there at the end. Uh, yeah, that was cool. Specifically, specifically says, oh, I think this is a Laphroaig. I was like, hell yeah, a little single malt. <laughs> there was a couple times they talked about single malts and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I was into it. I want some of that Jamaican um, whatever stuff. 
of the stuff that makes you paralyzed. Yeah, it sounds really good. Well, you have to drink it for a long time to get that. <laughs> Jamaican ginger or something. Um, Jake, that's what it's called. Jake, the Jake. Yeah. gives you the Jake. Gives you Jakey legs. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds like a dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, here we are at the end of the book. Um, like you said, there's a lot of narrative symmetry here. There's a lot of things coming full circle. We see him run away to the circus again. Um, and the ending is tinged with a sort of sadness, um, that, that, uh, it makes the, the, the kind of expected romantic plot feel a little different than what I've seen in the past, because you, you know what I mean? Like that played out in a way that you might expect, maybe the, not the elephant part, but them getting together and being happy and living happily ever after essentially. But this is like another, this is something slightly different, right? Like a subtle twist on that. And we see, we see this final stage of life for this guy where, where he has lost a lot of the things right. and he only has his memories left. And it's like, it takes care of something else in, in a more thorough way, I think, where if you if you end the story, if you only, if you take out all of the stories of him in the home and you only tell the story from the perspective of him younger at the circus and then you end it with the stampede and they get away, you say that they live happily ever after. Everybody wants the epilogue, right? Everybody wants to know what happened to them later in life. And so for yeah. to frame it this way, you get like a more thorough example of like what his life became and what it meant to him and all this kind of stuff. Um, so late in life where he's he's like reflecting on it and then, you know, ending with him going back. To, we have the entire story, like his entire life story yeah. in there for the most part. Well, and your focus to think about, and this is something that I do like to think about, it's like everything is... Um, in transition. Nothing is permanent, right? And the idea that he got everything he wanted, he got the love story, he got he had five children, he had he talks about having salad days where he was, you know, life was really he was really happy, but it just flew by. And then, you know, he was married sixty one years and then and then now it's over. And um that's just kind of the nature of life, right? Like and I don't know, I I like that and, and I also like sort of from a meta perspective what this kind of forces you to do. And I think um for one, it makes you think about animal cruelty and, you know, um, you know, wrestle with that. But then also I think there's a really nice message of sort of um respecting the elderly and like where they are and like what um how difficult it is to be helpless like that, yet the idea that like there's still people with stories and who've seen a lot and have experienced a lot of things in their lives. Um, so I think that it, it kind of infused this story with a lot of other things that I thought was really working. And uh, yeah, I think it came together nicely. I think this was a was a well well written book, and yeah, I enjoyed covering it. I'm excited so. to see what an adaptation of this looks like. I think I think it'll be pretty cool. I think uh, it's Robert Pattinson and Reese Witherspoon. Oh yeah, and um, did I see Christoph Waltz was in this movie? I mean, I don't, know. I haven't looked into it that much. I just know the leads. Okay, I'll let you know uh, next week. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out <laughs> next week. Um, once again, I just want to shout out uh, Jamie D for, you know, basically completely, uh, you know, uh, commissioning this with her tokens. Um, she's been one of our jukebox heroes for a little while now, um, with a, with an assist from Stephen E at the end there. But um, this is something that she really wanted, and um, I hopefully she enjoyed our sort of weird coverage we've had here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you, as a listener, you enjoy this sort of thing and you like the, um, us covering something that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone, um, even though it was sort of a com- comforting story to read in some ways, um, 
but this is not the usual sort of thing we do here. You just look through our past projects and see that. Um, but yeah, if we are open to doing it, and if you enjoyed this coverage and you liked our take on this sort of thing, let us know. Let us know some other romance adaptations, um, you know, historical or otherwise, um, that you think we might enjoy. We're always on the lookout for that sort of thing. Um, and if you wanted to find out how to become a patron and uh, you can find our bonus content, um, go to patreon.com slash film. And in fact, this most recent month, we put out an episode about season two of The Expanse, uh, our reaction to that entire season of television. Um, so if you want to check that out, definitely do so. And also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And join the Council of Inklings because we post polls, which we actually, our last project, Minority Report, we posted a poll and that's how that project was selected. So we post that yeah. kind of thing. We also post adaptation news, any sort of stuff that we see that's interesting within either of these two fields of writing and filmmaking. So definitely join that group. Absolutely. And if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. It's a great way to get the word out. Um, we've got a couple of reviews recently that were really, really cool. Um, I love to see them always make my day. So, um, that's another reason to do it. If you want to give, give me a, give me a nice morning, uh, I'll wake up and see a new review on there and it, it always makes me happy. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. Uh, we are going to be back next week. Like you said, for this film adaptation, I know next to nothing about it. I think maybe Christoph Waltz is in it. And if not, I'm going to feel silly for talking about it here, but <laughs> it would be cool if he was. Um, Robert Pattinson, uh, the new, new, new Batman, right? Yeah. Is that, that's who it is, right? Yes. Yeah. So be curious to see that. He was um, great in the lighthouse. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that yet either, but I want to, that, that movie looks good. Yeah. So yeah, he's definitely one of those, like, we'll talk, we'll get into it. You know, he's, he's, he seems like he's having, he's shifting gears in his career, um, where he's at now from what he like was in his twilight years, you know, obviously. And, um, this is the, I'm curious to see what sort of performance he puts in for this movie. Um, I'm interested, you know, so we'll be back next week with a guest. Um, so check that out. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>